Well, today is Palm Sunday, but I'm actually in my preaching going to continue going through the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. Today we are looking at the phrase, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The text is found in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44. I I would encourage you to follow along. I'm going to just preach this text kind of one or two verses at a time and march right through it. Uh, Luke 23, starting in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. First, we need to get our times a little bit right. Okay, in those days, they don't have clocks. They don't have watches. They don't have digital uh, timekeepers. And so, hours are estimated. And an hour is a length of time, but an hour kind of changes based on the length of the day. They don't have any way of measuring minutes and seconds. So, they estimate The Jewish time starts at about sunrise, which they considered about 6 a.m. And then they counted hours from there. And again, they're estimating the hours. But what they knew was when the sun was right up above you, that was high noon. That was the the middle of the day. And they would have called that the sixth hour. Okay, So from there, zero, to there, the sixth hour. Then they sort of divided the sky again. And so if the sun was a quarter of the way up, okay, that would be the third hour. So third hour, sixth hour, and you can do the math. The ninth hour would be over here. So uh, 6 a.m., about 9 a.m., about noon, about 3, about 6 again. Okay? So Jesus is crucified about 9 a.m. He's crucified. He's put on the cross about the third hour, 9 a.m. It is now the sixth hour. It's about noon. Jesus has been on the cross for about three hours. This should have been the time of day where you're squinting. I mean, this is Israel, okay? There's not a lot of clouds. This is sun beating down on you. Your eyes are squinting to see around. Middle of the day. And yet, the text tells us that the sun's light failed. The sky goes black. It's not an eclipse. Um, We know that because Passover is based on the full moon, scheduled based on the full moon. And you can't have an eclipse with a full moon. Um, This is not an eclipse. The sun's light fails, and we get darkness for about three hours. Imagine this moment in Israel. Jerusalem is full of people for the Passover. Everybody's hustling and bustling about their business. In the afternoon are the sacrifices of the Passover lambs. And so a lot of people are already starting to try to get their spot in the temple to witness that occurrence. There's there's crucifixions going on. People are going out to see that as part of the day. And suddenly the lights go out. There's no way that the Jews would have seen the sun go out and not thought of the Old Testament prophets particularly the minor prophets. The minor prophets used to talk about this coming day called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was this day coming that was a day of judgment, a day where God would come and would judge the world of their sins. And the prophets make a big deal out of this. They give a lot of descriptions of this. But part of their message to Israel is, listen, 
you, you are excited about the day of the Lord because you say God's going to punish your enemies. But I'm warning you that you're not in a very good place with God. Again and again, the minor prophets say that this, this day of the Lord is not going to be the great thing you think it is. For you will not be spared the judgment. Here's how Zephaniah describes it in Zephaniah 1. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. <coughs> a day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Israel had grown up on these stories. Grown up on these passages. Listen to how Amos describes it in Amos 8.9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Amos, writing in the, in the prophets, calls the time. At about noon, the sun's going to go dark. God's judgment is coming. According to the Gospels, the sun goes down for three hours beginning at this moment. And when the darkness hits, the people must have remembered that Amos passage, <coughs> particularly the priests who had taught that passage. They are in the temple, and all of a sudden, as they're getting ready for the, for the sacrifices, the sun goes out, and they've got to they've light lamps. And they've got to take a look and decide, maybe we shouldn't have crucified that guy, right? Maybe there's a judgment coming for us. Why does it go dark? Why is this day like the day of the Lord? It's that way because the wrath and judgment of God are poured out in those hours. God's judgment comes, but here's the good news. God's judgment doesn't come to you and it doesn't come to me. His judgment is poured out on Jesus on the cross. Jesus bears the, the judgment. He bears the wrath. He bears the darkness for us all. Text tells us that at 3 p.m., uh, the lights come back on. The sun kind of lights back up, and suddenly the day can go on as it had been. Luke tells us that at this time, the veil of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. This may seem like a boring detail, but it's really a very powerful image. See, there were this place in the temple, I've described this many times. Sort of the regular area, our sanctuary represents this where everybody was, and then the holy area where the priests would have to go in on a daily basis to keep candles lit and keep things happening. And then what would be the holy of holies, which we represent as sort of the step in these walls here. And the priests would only go into this area one time per year. One time the priests would go in to tend to the everything, to put blood on, <coughs> on the mercy seat, on the tabernacle. And then the priests would get out, and in another year they would go back in to do the same thing again. So imagine these priests getting ready for the Passover. The lambs were typically sacrificed between 3 and 5 on that Friday, between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. And it would always begin at 3 o'clock with the Passover lamb. One lamb, the perfect lamb, probably the high priest had brought that lamb in the Sunday before on Palm Sunday. 
And this perfect lamb would be the Passover lamb for all of Israel. And then the rest of the Passover lambs would be slaughtered after this one. And so here are the priests. They're getting ready. It's been dark, so they've been moving slow to get ready. You can imagine them having a little conversation. Are we doing this? You think we should go ahead with the sacrifices? Yeah, listen, we got all these people. We better. So they start to get ready for the sacrifices, and they hear a, a big rip. Now they got to go check. And you can imagine the priest that they've got to do this whole ceremonial ritual to get cleansed to go into the holy area. And he walks in to find this big tear and he can see into the Holy of Holies. This space between God and humanity that that was so clearly marked with this giant curtain is now torn. This is a crisis. How, How can we as a people... Uh, work with this temple? How do we fix a torn curtain in an area that we're not allowed to go into but once a year? Okay? And only really one priest could do that. And is that priest any good at, at fixing curtains? We don't know. It's a crisis. The gap between, the separation between God's holy presence and us as a people is torn. The author of Hebrews helps us interpret this moment. He writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. The author of Hebrews looks at this moment, this ripping of the curtain, and and shows it to be just like the ripping of the side of Jesus. That now, because of Jesus' blood, we have full access to God. We don't need a priest to go see Him once a year. We got Him. He's out. He's not contained anymore, and He's not separated from us anymore. The sacrifice has been made so that we can boldly go into the holy places. Imagine the chaos in Jerusalem that day. The busyness, the crowds, the darkness, the torn curtains. All the lambs that are sitting around waiting to be slaughtered. The other Gospels record earthquakes that break rock. That's pretty serious earthquakes, right? Earthquakes that break rock. And even that some of the tombs are broken open by these earthquakes. And people who have passed away come walking into Jerusalem that way. That that day. Imagine the utter chaos of Jerusalem on this particular day. But by contrast, there is a strange calm to Jesus who is suffering on this cross. Let me pick up in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's significant that Jesus can cry out. He's not actually dying of suffocation the way many would. If that were the case, he wouldn't know it was coming. He would just pass out and he'd be out of air to yell. No, he has breath. He sees it's coming. He's lucid. He understands that the end is near. Um, Perhaps he willingly dies. Or perhaps um, he has some kind of aneurysm in his heart, some kind of, of medical condition where he understands that the end has come. And so he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you've been following along in the series, you should not be surprised to hear that Jesus is here quoting a psalm. Multiple times during Jesus' death, he cries out seven times, many of them 
He's quoting the Psalms. This one's no exception. He is quoting from Psalm 31. Let me read just a couple of verses. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness. Deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake you lead and guide me. <coughs> you take me out of the net they have hidden for me. You, For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Jesus borrows from this psalm. If you read the whole psalm, um, you'll find that the psalmist is praying in the midst of distress, but is praising God in the midst of that distress for God's faithfulness. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, the psalmist is still praising God and asking God to care for his soul, his spirit, even if he dies. But notice that Jesus does not quote this psalm directly. He makes two changes to the psalm. And the two changes are significant. First, Jesus addresses God as Father. This shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? All the time, Jesus is praying, Abba, Father. He's praying to God as Father. But it's significant that in this moment, dying on a cross, having felt the darkness of the last three hours, having felt like perhaps in some way the Father's wrath is being poured out on him, he's still in this moment, at the very end, can call God Father. Though Jesus is wounded in his body, his relationship with his Father is not wounded. Okay, It's still his Father, and he still trusts him to the end. This has been the prayer of his whole life. Thy will be done. I'm going about my Father's work. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The other change that Jesus makes to the psalm is he leaves out the second half of the verse. He does not say that God has ransomed or redeemed him. But of course, in this moment, that's his job. In this moment, he is the redeemer. In this moment, he is the ransomer. He is the savior that in his death is bringing all of us life. Jesus says these words and then he breathes his last. And he dies. We need to hear these words from Jesus because someday you and I will each breathe our last. And we will watch as others breathe their last around us. Part of the Christian funeral is what we call a committal. Okay? And it comes from this language from the Psalms and from Jesus. That we commit our dearly departed spirit to the Lord and we commit their body to the ground. Often saying something like, ashes to ashes dust to dust. In my years of being a pastor, I've done a number of funerals. I've walked with a number of people as they've dealt with loss and grief and death, bad diagnoses and sickness. I've watched as we all struggle in these moments. We all struggle. We lose our faith. We have our doubts. And yet we see in Jesus this great example of facing death in hope. As Christians, we don't fear death. We don't fear loss. We are merely giving over to God what is already God's. Jesus is able to do this because this has been the prayer life of his whole life. He has always given himself over to God's hands. And now at the end, he has practiced that prayer. 
In fact, Psalm 31 is a children's prayer. It's an evening prayer for the Jews, and it's one that's taught to your children. You would say this with your children before you went to sleep at night. In fact, you all probably learned a very similarly themed prayer at nighttime with your parents, and it went like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. How many of you have prayed that prayer? You know that prayer? It's the same themed prayer. You understand that? The same prayer. Lord, I trust you. And if I don't wake up, I still trust you. I give you myself. And if if I don't make it, then I give you my spirit. Take it. I'm in your hands either way. That's the prayer of this psalm. And that's the same prayer that Jesus had been taught his whole life to pray. That Mary and Joseph would have pulled him next to them before bed and would have prayed Psalm 31 with him. This was a prayer he knew from the time he was a child. And so Jesus, with a certain childlike faith in this moment of death, goes back to this prayer of his childhood and he commits his spirit over to the Father. And so Jesus gives us this great example of dying in prayer with hope and faith. At the same moment, three o'clock, right about at the same moment that the Passover lamb is being slaughtered in the temple, Jesus is praying this prayer and he is dying. He is the ultimate Passover lamb that the Lord provides, except instead of saving all the firstborn, it is God's own firstborn that is given up as the Passover lamb. Access to God is granted. The curtain is torn. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. The darkness is poured out. The judgment is satisfied. Jesus takes that all on. And now light has come again. And so Luke, in just a couple of verses here, has given us some amazing imagery to think about what is happening to Jesus on the cross. And he gives us three responses for us to think about. So back in the verse, verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowd that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Three responses to Jesus, all correct for the people that give them. First, the centurion. This was a Roman guard. He was probably in charge of overseeing this whole thing. Probably in charge of guarding and overseeing the crucifixion in this whole process. And so it's been his job to stand there and witness this whole event. And the result is that he is convinced. He is convinced that Jesus is innocent. I mean, he's the centurion. He's been noticing the darkness, right? He's been noticing the chaos. He knows the busyness of this weekend in Jerusalem. But he's convinced that, man, amongst all this chaos, when I look at this man and the way he doesn't curse anyone, the way he forgives the one who puts him on the cross, the way he remains faithful to his father till the end, this man is innocent. He's convinced. Second, the crowds are there to mock Jesus, and they react. 
These are not the Pharisees. They had work to do. Passover is a really busy day. They didn't stick around all day and mock Jesus all day. They may have had a couple of representatives there, but they were going to be where the action was. They had killed the one that they wanted killed, and now they were going back to the temple to do their work. No, these crowds, the text says, were assembled for the spectacle. They were there for the entertainment. They were there to cheer and to jaunt and to, to, uh, to taunt and to get the entertainment out of the crucifixion. But Luke tells us that when Jesus dies, they go home beating their breasts. This is a symbol of sorrow, dismay, and contrition. While the centurion is convinced, the crowds are convicted. What they know is that they are taunting a man that was innocent. That there's something on their soul that needs to be dealt with because they've witnessed the death of this innocent man. Third, and the last group are the acquaintances of Jesus. We know that some women go to the cross. <clears throat> we know John goes. We don't know how many other disciples may have gone. Uh, it would have been dangerous for the disciples to go. Okay? Jesus is being crucified uh, because he was, it was said that he was a zealot against Rome. If you were a follower of him, you were in danger of going to the cross yourself. So it's not likely that many of them came. John was younger, maybe felt like he could or should go with Mary, but most of the disciples probably don't. But Jesus has other people that follow him that he knows. But notice they're in a distance. I'm sure if you had to witness a friend and a mentor and someone you've followed for these last three years die this kind of death, you couldn't hang out for six hours. You couldn't hang out for six hours. But they won't quite leave either. They stand off at a distance kind of waiting for him to die. They're not convinced or convicted. They're probably more confused. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They're just kind of taking it all in, kind of in a fog. We know their reaction is going to be very different on Sunday. But for now, they don't know what to think and they don't know what to do. I love that Luke gives us these three reactions of convinced, convicted, and confused. Because they're all fitting reactions for the people that are witnessing. And you and I, we all come to Easter at a different place in our lives. And a different place in our faith. Some of us are in need of some conviction. Some of us are in need of some convincing. Some of us just aren't sure what to say or what to do. And yet... As we enter Holy Week, this is the time to reflect on what Jesus has done. I want to encourage you to pick up your Bibles this week and read through the passages about the crucifixion. And then as you get later in the week, read through the passages in the gospel about the resurrection. There's a lot of great symbolism, a lot of great wording, a lot of great hope to be found in those words. Because ultimately, Easter is about helping us to commit our lives to the Father. They're about, it's about us learning how to pray this prayer of Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Father, into your hands I commit my children. And Father, into your hands I commit my marriage. And Father, into your hands I commit my work. And Father, into your hands I commit my doubts and my fears and my mistakes. I commit them to you. And that process takes time. Christian maturity is the process of slowly doling that out. Oh, and, and slowly realizing those points in which we're not really committing everything. But, but you understand, Easter is the time where we see God's hands at work. And it's in this time that we can fully trust God 
that his hands are reliable and his hands are ready if we would just commit ourselves to them. You can trust him to hold you in the palm of his hands. And at the very end, Jesus did. Let us pray. Father, we commit ourselves to you. And we pray that you would work in our lives, move in our lives. Show us those areas where we do hold back. And help us to commit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.